0: Scientists have created a new, more powerful technique to edit genes. While most people may be familiar with CRISPR, this new method is called prime editing, and it offers more precise gene cuts with less errors. This new gene editing technique could enable the treatment for approximately 89% of genetic mutations that cause disease. For more on the story, we spoke to Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET.
1: This is a really exciting development for gene editing in general. And it comes out of David Liu's lab at Harvard, as you said, at the Broad Institute. David Liu's been working in this space for a long time, so he's very, very cluey when it comes to uh, how to edit genes. And he actually worked on a lot of the base editors. Now, I guess to really distill it down to its basic level, a base editor can change the letters of DNA and CRISPR-Cas9 can do the same thing. But prime editors have a really unique ability to find and replace entire swathes of DNA and do it without creating errors. And that's the biggest key and the biggest change over CRISPR and base editing is that there's such a low error rate. And really at the moment, what's preventing this technology from being used in human therapeutics to treat genetic disease is the fact that the error rate is just too high for us at the moment. So it is a massive change, but it, I caution and say that this is actually just the beginning. This is a very proof of principle paper. Uh, And there's still a lot of work to do from not just David Liu's lab, but scientists around the world now have access to prime editing. And what they'll do is hopefully refine it until it gets to the point where we can use it in human beings. But the exciting
0: part is if we are able to refine it and get it to work as we want it to, it could enable treatment for approximately 89% of human genetic mutations that cause disease. So it could really be a huge game changer.
1: Absolutely. I mean, game changing is definitely the right word. I think it's maybe a little bit overused sometimes, he says, but this is game changing in that being able to bring that error rate down is really what's hampering CRISPR specifically from being sort of used in a human therapeutics. And I use the example of sickle cell anemia, which is something that Lou's lab did in this new paper. Sickle cell anemia affects your blood cells. So your blood cells take on a sickle shape and they actually become really sticky and they can't carry oxygen around the body as well. And in that disease, it's actually only a very tiny genetic mutation that causes it. So if prime editors can go in and edit the DNA of a patient with sickle cell disease, and refine that tiny little change, that one genetic mutation, one DNA letter, you can actually essentially cure sickle cell anemia and that's sort of been in essence a holy grail of medicine for a long time to be able to go in, change one base, one DNA letter in your genetic code and essentially cure a disease.
0: The old tools like CRISPR, I would say old, but, you know, just how things keep advancing. The CRISPR versus the new tool, the prime editing. And part of it is you're saying that we can edit one single part of the gene. Traditionally, the CRISPR tool would cut across, basically. It would cut across both strands of the DNA. And this new style, we can just make the exact edits that we need.
1: So CRISPR is often referred to as molecular scissors. Uh, And this is actually an example that David Liu gave in a press briefing before his paper went live. CRISPR's molecular scissors, so it comes in, it cuts the DNA strand both, because DNA is double-stranded, it cuts both strands. And basically to edit the gene then, what happens is the body's natural system repairs that break. So depending on how it repairs the break, Sometimes you'll get the edit that you want, and sometimes you won't. You'll get something even weirder. So that's why CRISPR's sort of error rate is much higher because when those scissors come in and cut the DNA, they don't just cut the target that you want. Sometimes they'll actually cut DNA far away from your target site as well. It's 2012 the CRISPR paper came out. So CRISPR has been around for seven years, and it's continually being refined. We're using different enzymes to make better cuts. We're making different complexes so that you can paste different letters into the gap that it creates with a little bit more efficiency but it's not necessarily that it's old or that it's old hat anymore it will still be used because it's so so incredibly powerful but prime editing it doesn't cut both strands of the dna instead it actually kind of creates this this little flap of extra dna and that is what gives it really high precision but also basically what it has to do is Perform this secret handshake. So you and I, if we're if we're handshaking now, we might do a fist bump. We go into a quick grab, and then we hit each other's elbows or something. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever you do, Oscar, you tell me what sort of handshake you'd like to do. But that sounds about right. Essentially, with CRISPR, it's a single handshake. It's just nice to meet you, sort of thing. And that's what happens with the DNA and CRISPR. But with prime editors, they kind of have to do this secret three-step handshake. And with a three-step handshake, there's more opportunity to stuff it up and be like, hang on, you got the handshake wrong. So I'm not going to let you cut here. So that's what brings the error rate down and um, the off-target effects down a lot more than CRISPR is currently being able to be used. This is not
0: really ready yet for use in humans or anything like that. Obviously, you said it's a kind of a proof of concepts thing still. But one of the big problems is that these prime editors are pretty large in molecular terms, so they don't won't work everywhere just yet.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's something that they raise in the Nature paper from Monday, basically so far they've been able to get up to 44 base pairs so 44 dna letters they were able to insert into a genome and they're able to delete up to about 80 letters so that's still quite big in molecular terms and actually delivering that prime editor and the changes you want to make into the cell That's very, very difficult as it gets bigger and bigger. Of course, something like, say, if you're using like Advil or aspirin, these molecules are really tiny, so they can get in and alter the cell. For instance, for Advil, you're obviously going to feel a little bit better the next day after Big Dad drinking it. But with these big complexes, it becomes much more difficult for them to just slide into a cell. You actually have to sort of deliver them in a way that basically punctures them through the cell wall. And, And at the moment, some of those ways that are being used is, for instance, David Liu's lab used viruses. So you can attach the complex to a virus and get the virus basically to deliver it into the cell and get to the DNA where you want to make that edit. But at the moment, that's a very long way off in terms of how we could use it therapeutically because that delivery process is kind of the biggest roadblock at the moment.
0: And how successful have they been with this so far from the article? It seems like they've performed at least 175 different DNA edits.
1: So what they did in the paper is they took human cell lines, so four different human cell lines and mouse neuronal cells. This is something that scientists use all around the world for various different purposes. With the cell lines, they corrected sickle cell anemia and they corrected Tay-Sachs disease, which is, I believe, a disease of the spinal cord or of the brain. And basically, the success rate or the efficiency of cutting is anywhere between 20 and 70%. So this isn't perfect, but it also doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't have to get 100% DNA editing, DNA cuts, for it to be a successful treatment, for instance. For something like sickle cell, what actually happens for a patient is... If I've got sickle cell anemia, I'll actually have my blood drawn. It'll be taken out of my body and then edited in the lab. And then what will happen is that blood will be put back into my system with the edits. And actually, that is how you can start to treat sickle cell anemia. And indeed, with CRISPR, this has already started to happen in the US. So there's been a couple of patients that have already undergone this treatment. Off the top of my head, I don't have any sort of results for it, but I know that it has definitely started this year. So Prime Edit is just essentially... If they can bump up how successful that gene editing is, it could be pretty big for something like sickle cell anemia where the changes that you have to make are very minimal.
0: Jackson Ryan, science editor at CNET, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. Finally for this week, cannabis restaurants are coming to California, and if all goes well, this could be a model you start seeing in other states. The now-open Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe is pairing a farm-to-table meal with flower service, so you can pair your meal with that perfect strain of weed. Even though the state has legalized recreational marijuana, running a cannabis restaurant is nothing like running a typical restaurant, and there are a lot more regulations to follow. There's a lot of creative things at play to make this all work, and for more, we spoke to Mara Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post.
2: So this is pretty groundbreaking in terms of what people are doing with cannabis. There have been a number of pop-up restaurants. There are some consumption lounges that are attached to dispensaries. But uh, when Lowell Farms opens its cafe in West Hollywood, it will be the first full service open to the public restaurant that serves a full meal plus cannabis. And they're going to be opening in early September. And you know they've had to jump through a lot of logistical hurdles to get this off the ground.
0: It's called Lowell Farms Cannabis Cafe. The main partner in this is Lowell Herb Company, which has a bunch of celebrity backers, uh, Miley Cyrus, Chris Rock, Mark Ronson, Sarah Silverman. A lot of big names and a a lot of money behind these ventures. I mean, one of the interesting things was that because of all the licensing and and all all the things that you need, it's going to be about $3 million for this restaurant to open.
2: Yeah, it takes a lot of money to open one of these Because there's a lot of lobbying There were the license proposals Which were quite expensive And there's a lot more expenses than running a typical restaurant I think that's one thing people don't understand about these Is that you have to have extra staff You have to have 24-hour security If it's a smoking lounge You need these like very expensive vents To suck up the smoke and purify the air There's just a lot that goes into it And so that's why a big company like Lowell Is well-positioned to do it But there are also a number of small entrepreneurs um, and smaller businesses that are working towards operating one of these restaurants as well.
0: Tell us, kind of describe how this cannabis cafe slash restaurant, everything, how it's going to work. You're going to be able to sit down, order a dish, and then somebody will bring you a joint that pairs with that dish.
2: Yes, exactly. Basically, um, there will be two outdoor areas and one indoor area in the Lowell Cafe. Um, there's one area for people who aren't going to consume cannabis at all, um, if someone just wants to come in for a coffee or a snack. Um, and then there are two areas where you'll be able to smoke or vape. There will also be a limited number of edibles that they'll have. And actually, there will be two different sets of waiters um, or servers. You'll have one person who will be serving you your food, and then another person who will be serving you your cannabis, and they will be a little bit more highly trained. They'll be able to offer you really specific um, recommendations based on what you want to feel and and what your level of experience and tolerance is. And that's by design, actually. It's part of the regulations that they've had to go through. Um, You need separate staff for both areas of the restaurant.
0: This is going to be done in West Hollywood, California, and even the West Hollywood City Council has been very Involved in all this and kind of suggesting and and approving how to work with the regulations. Uh, Basically, as you mentioned, you know, there's going to be a separate waiter, separate bills even for food and for cannabis. And that's part of it. You're basically housing two businesses under one roof.
2: Exactly, yeah. And the reason for that is that there is this big discrepancy between the state law and the West Hollywood local laws. And so um, West Hollywood created, they, they passed this ordinance and they essentially created this type of license where people would be able to serve cannabis and food together and eventually infuse the food. But that's actually not legal at the state level yet. And there is no cannabis cafe license at the state level. And the state actually doesn't permit people to serve food and cannabis together. And so The reason they've had to come up with all these loopholes is so that they're able to operate this business and still stay within the state law. And the the way that they're doing that is essentially co-locating the two businesses under one roof. And so when you go to the Lowell Cafe, you're essentially going to a dispensary because that is what the state has licensed it as. And they will have more limited rules than other dispensaries in West Hollywood. You won't actually be able to take things out of the area. You'll have to consume them on site. And when you order food, you'll essentially be ordering delivery from the place next door, which is actually under the same roof.
0: There's another restaurant that could be on its way soon. It's called Antidote. And they have another creative loophole for actually being able to infuse the uh, marijuana, the cannabis into food. Because one of the problems is with food is that that stuff has to be prepackaged and tested before for quality assurance and whatnot. So for a kitchen to infuse fresh food right there in a kitchen, it's impossible to do. You can't have a regulator standing by 24-7 there. So tell us what the plan that Antidote would be using, what their loophole would be.
2: Yeah, Antidote has a really clever plan. Um, what they are going to do when they open, and I think they're a little further off, they're planning for the spring of 2020, but they are planning to open a commissary kitchen that produces THC-infused sauces or dressings or oils or butters, like things, you know, chocolate for a dessert. And what you would do is, again, have those two co-located businesses under one roof, a cannabis business and the restaurant business. And from the cannabis business for antidote, you would buy your butter or your oil or your sauce to go with your meal that you're ordering from the restaurant. And it would be prepackaged and tested already because they've made it and those things have a longer shelf life. And so it's kind of a way of infusing your food without actually infusing it on site. And by law, people have to open the package themselves. So you would order essentially a small bottle of salad dressing or a pat of butter and put it on the food yourself.
0: What about some of the main concerns? Because in the way that cannabis affects people differently, their tolerances, dosage levels, everybody's a little different, especially when it comes to edibles. Are there concerns with this? Are there plans to tackle any of that?
2: the businesses are really aware of that. And I mean, it's it's obviously in their best interest that guests don't over consume, not just because it could get the restaurant in trouble, but also because they really want people to have a good experience and they want them to be regulars and come back often. And if someone gets too high and has like a really, really bad night, they're, they're going to be less inclined to come back. So it's in their best interest to make sure that people don't have too much. So those bud tenders, the people who are going to be helping people choose their cannabis will kind of recommend a dose if people aren't very experienced or haven't had cannabis in a long time. They'll want you to start with a lower dose and then maybe amp it up if you aren't feeling anything. But they also know that edibles take a while to kick in. So they affect everyone differently. And I think that for people who are coming to these cafes for the first time and maybe are less experienced cannabis consumers, they're going to urge you to really consume it in moderation. And then as you continue to have experiences, then you can experiment with different things. But they really don't want people to be driving home. If they are under the influence, they're going to help you get an Uber or a Lyft. They have security on site in case someone goes a little bit overboard and they have ways of kind of helping people calm down.
0: What have they said about as far as turning tables over? Because if someone's in there getting high, they're relaxed, they might linger a lot longer. It might be harder to turn over tables. There's also this other thing of, it's kind of like uh, if you open a, uh, a bottle of beer or a bottle of wine in a restaurant, you can't really take the leftover with you. So if you uh, get extra flour or something like that, that all has to stay there. So that's also kind of another uh, concern, maybe something that needs to be worked on.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's something that um, I think from the city council, they're still kind of figuring out a solution to the problem of leftovers because some of the business owners here, they're worried that if someone buys something that's a little bit more formidable, like a like a whole chocolate bar or something that's really not a single serving thing, that you know if they can't take their leftovers home, they're going to feel kind of cheated. Either that or they'll take the entire edible and maybe go a little bit overboard. So that's something that they're still kind of working out between the businesses and the city. But there are a lot of other ways, too, that it's really not the same. Um, You know, they have to choose their locations very carefully because they can't be located within 600 feet of a school. Um, The banking is really, really tough for cannabis businesses because traditional federally regulated banks can't really do business with them. And so a lot of this is like cash transactions or they use alternative banks. And I think because of a lot of these issues, too, a lot of these businesses think that they're not really going to make a lot of money in the first year because they, expenses are so great to operate one of these things. The tables won't turn as quickly because people probably will tend to linger. And they're kind of viewing it more as an investment in the future and an investment in normalizing cannabis and kind of making these sort of experiences a regular thing that people can just make a part of their social life.
0: Tell us uh, finally, just at at the end of this, um, a a little bit more about the chef, Andrea Drummer uh, from Lowell Mm -hmm. Farms Cannabis Cannabis Café. Uh, because she's really trying to make this uh, a a big thing. And she studied um, at Le Cordon Bleu. So she has a little bit of culinary chops behind her. And and this is really what's going to drive this second half of this business.
2: Yeah, yeah. I spent some time with Andrea um, when I was reporting this story, and like, this has been her dream for a really long time. She um, is a cannabis medical patient um, that she uses cannabis to treat sciatica, um, a back injury that she got from standing on her feet in the kitchen for too long. And she said that cannabis really changed her life, and because of that, she you know she really believes in the mission of this, and she wants cannabis cafes to be normalized, and she wants them to be legal everywhere. Um, she has. Run a pop-up and private chef business um, doing private cannabis dinners for people, including celebrities um, like Chelsea Handler. She was on her show and she's been on the Netflix show Cooking on High uh, but she's run these private dinners for a long time so she's very, very experienced in dosing and, you know, in cooking with cannabis and all of these flavor profiles. She studied them in the same way that a sommelier would study wine um, and so she is very excited for, for her dream to finally become a reality and she's been working towards opening this restaurant for many, many years.
0: Maura Judkis, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive and iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.